How are we doing, folks? My guest today is going to be Brittany Cox. Britt is a four-time Olympian and former world champion in freestyle mogul skiing from Australia. And in this episode, we discuss her illustrious career. We touch on how she got her start and how she got into skiing and what drove her at an early age and continues to drive her today. We also talk about and discuss the fact that she's recently retired and the next phases and steps in her life. I hope you folks enjoy this episode and please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Really had a great time chatting with Britt and I really uh, think you're going to enjoy it as well. Thanks. That's what I'm talking about. Britt, thank you uh, so much for taking the time. We were able to work out the different time zones and everything. You know, probably just have been easier if we had done this in in Australia. You know, I had yeah. brought all the equipment down too, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Those early you brought mornings. brought it all the way. I did bring it all the all way down, down there. And then yeah. I had talked about it a little bit too. It was like, you know, I was talking about like Emerson or Morgan. Like, oh, it'd be cool to like, you know, do a little <laughs> recording while we're down here and just... But, uh, you know, those, those 5 a.m. Uh, ski tubes kind of kind of get in the way. Yeah, the, day, the days end up, they end up getting pretty long in Jindabyne, so it's understandable. An, and this yeah, works. So. Yeah, this works all right. Yeah, like, you yeah. know, COVID but had a few, uh, few positives. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So first and foremost, I mean, congratulations on just an absolute fantastic career. And, I mean, how, how does it feel to kind of, not totally be closing the page. I mean, you're still around and still involved. And, you know, a lot of the events this uh, winter down there, we, you know, you presented a lot of the trophies and did a lot of the social media and still definitely like around and definitely still like skied some really, really nice middle sections. I think you could have, you know, definitely could have, could have competed and, and had some uh, really good training, but finally, finally you've, you've moved on. So uh, c congratulations. Mm, thank you. I'm, um... Oh, yeah, it's it's kind of bittersweet. It was definitely a very difficult decision to make um, mm. after Beijing. I I hadn't decided before the Olympics what I was going to do moving forward. I just told myself about a year out from the games that I will think about it after the games when the when the time comes, and just to give myself the space to com be completely focused on Beijing and the season and my skiing and um, and not have the stress of that in, in the back of my mind. So. When yeah, I got home from Beijing, sort of mm. to ask myself that question of what I was going to do and um, also had that question asked to me by pretty much everyone. Um, it's a logical question to ask. So there was a lot of time to think about it. And initially I was like, yep, I'm, I want to do another year. I really want to compete um, higher DD on, on World Cup. I, you know, I was doing a D spin on in, on snow in training, but I hadn't competed it. And mm. I was like, "Yep, yeah, that's that's what I want to do." And I think I was kind of riding that high of uh, the Olympic Games and uh, just having such a, a fulfilling experience over in Beijing made me yeah. excited. And um, I just love mogul skiing, so I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to do it." And then sort of started to sit down with um, one of my mentors because um, I'm actually studying Bachelor of Communications, majoring in journalism and PR, mm -hmm. um, and interested in that sports journalism space and, and media and presenting and I have a mentor um, back here in Australia who's helping me with that and I, I can't he asked me what the question what are you doing and uh, I was like I, I don't really know I think I'm going to keep skiing but do you think there are any opportunities for me and he started to um, explain to me some opportunities in um, the communication space and for the I think for the first time ever I actually 
I got really excited about that. The first time it, it was the first time I'd ever been as excited, if not more excited, about something other than um, competing mogul skiing. So mm-hmm. I think for me that was kind of a, a bit of a wake up call, and it made me realize that um, I was ready to challenge myself in different ways and um, not not close the chapter, not close the book, but yeah. I guess just turn the page into a new chapter. Mm-hmm. No, that's really, I mean, really, really exciting. And um, that's a good, it's a great field to, to get into. And I mean, it seems, I know from watching you on social media and everything, you've already done, presented some award shows and kind of work on some of that public speaking and, and some of those things. And you um, went and did the young Olympic ambassador program kind of after and got to tour. And that, that seemed like it was a really, really cool experience. Yeah. I, I mean, I still want to stay very, uh, closely involved in sport, especially mm-hmm. winter sport in Australia. And that's part of the reason why I went up to Perisher and Mount Buller for the, the two competitions in Australia this season is to still be involved both in a sense of mentoring younger athletes. We've got so many young up-and-comers in Australian pre-stocking at the moment, but also um, working in the media. And uh, I had an opportunity earlier this year to take part in a Victorian government women in broadcast program women in sport broadcast program um Very and cool. that sort of opened my eyes up to a few different opportunities um where i was able to host a few events for women's photo action awards sport action awards um and also saw the opportunity to go over to the young olympic ambassadors program in greece and that was kind of around about the time i was toying the idea of retiring and um gotcha. it ended up being a really nice of my Olympic experience um, mm. where I was sort of I learned a lot about uh, the Olympic movement and uh, the values of Olympism that I I didn't really know when I was an athlete and it just sort of made me realize that I can continue to live out those values in my life post um, competitive competitive athletic career and mm-hmm. um, yeah it was just nice to be in a community of I think it was about 130 different people, two from each country that are involved cool. in the Olympic Games, um, to learn about the history of the Olympics, the values of Olympism, and the theme for that program this year was how that can be communicated by digital media. Uh, so it oh, wow. kind of com- it combined it, it combined my my two passions into one. So it was really um, nice experience over there and. Um, there was a little, there was a little bit of partying as well. So that was, I'm that sure, was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, you put in all that effort and all that time. It's really cool that, uh, the digital kind of, um, part of it to, to go into it as yeah. well, which is right, right down your field. So that's, that's, yeah, really, really I mean, cool. they were talking about things from, uh, virtual sports to esports and things like that. And, and just seeing what sort of the, possible direction of uh, the Olympic movement was quite interesting mm-hmm. um, and then to be able to discuss that and study that with people from very different backgrounds different cultures different languages I think in my study group I was the only person in that group with English as their first language really? so yeah so I naturally got um, designated as the the team's um, <laughs> scribe so I was always writing the assignments and putting them together but it was really cool to see how people from different cultures and backgrounds could come together to study and, and learn how to work together, which is what the Olympic movement is all about. So um, it was nice to see that on a bit more of a, a micro level. 
Very cool. And, and what, what is the difference? I mean, you know, you talk about like working together and, and those values, but I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but kind of being able to go around the other side, right? Because I mean, you're a four-time Olympian every single time you're going in there and you have that specific goal and, and it's kind of hard to, to focus in on some of those, um, I guess, Olympic values or whatever, when you're like, okay, I have the goal of trying to go out and get a medal and, and do your best. I mean, you're kind of in that tunnel at least until your event's over. And then it's like, you know, a little, then you get to enjoy it a little bit more, but just, just kind of speak about, I mean, how different was that? Yeah, I, I can see what you're, you're talking about there because we compete in an individual sport, mm-hmm. but at the same time, no one, no one becomes a, a four-time Olympian alone. There's very much <laughs> a, a, a whole team behind me, um, mm-hmm. both in the sense of my, my teammates on the Australian national team, but also, you know, my family, my coaches, support staff, um, the Olympic Winter Institute, our sponsors. It's, it's a, a team, um, it's a team environment and it takes a team to, to get me into the start gate. So I think there's that, there's that element of it. Um, mm-hmm. But also I think what we notice on the, the World Cup Tour and mobile skiing is that we all have, yes, we're competing against each other, but we all have a lot of respect for what we're doing out there because um, mobile skiing is, is not um, the easiest sport, is not friendly on the body. And um, we're often pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone. So at the end of the day, we're um, happy for our competitors when they make it down safely. And um, we're also excited when they do something really cool. So, you know, everyone, if you stand at the bottom of a mobile course on a, a, during a World Cup competition, when someone does something awesome, everyone at the bottom is like, Ooh. so um, yeah. I guess there's that element as well that I think reflects the values of Olympism. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, it is one of those things where you're at the bottom and someone's doing something crazy down there and it is such a, such a difficult sport. I mean, how physically are you feeling like pretty good that you got out like fairly unscathed or do you like roll out of the bed like, oh God. <laughs> uh, the, back, the back's still pretty sore in the mornings. Um, I think though I, my body probably felt the worst around about uh, Pyeongchang in terms mm-hmm. of my back. I had 26 2016 I had some stress fractures and um I remember having an MRI got just before I went into that season and uh the doctor said my vertebrae had the wear and tear of a 40 year old um so I was like all right time to start looking after my body and that's kind of when I started um really like practicing yoga religiously every morning before I did any other training um I'd get up and do you know half an hour 25 minutes of yoga just to get my body ready for the day. Um, and that was, that was a bit of a game changer and uh, helped, I guess, the long, helped me with the longevity of my career. Yeah. Um, so the body's, the body's okay at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. I mean, do you think, so as the, as the sport kind of goes and, and with kind of some of those advancements, I mean, do you think you could see, cause there's only a couple people that kind of, um, stick around uh to kind of those those later uh ages and i'm sure part of that is financial um you know it's not like one of those other sports where you know it's an olympic sport most of the olympic sports you're not making you're you're not in it for the money for the most part right you're in it for the passion and the love of it definitely but do you (laughs) you're getting paid in other ways (laughs) right exactly but do you think um there's a way that you'll have somebody like 40 years old like in there 41 you think or like a tom brady or you think that there's too much in the future yeah Mm -hmm. or you think or you think that's uh there's not gonna be any snow so it's not gonna matter 
yeah, maybe that's that's probably more of a worry at the moment. Um, I don't know. I I'm I can't really see it at the I moment. Can't see it either. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I I mean, I did two runs, two middle sections, um, a couple of weeks ago up in Perishar, and my back was so sore the next day. But I know that was just mobile back, and it, and it mm. was settled. But, um, yeah, I mean. Maybe it can be done. Whether or not it's smart is right, another right. Yeah, another smart, discussion. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think also you know, throughout my career, um, I've seen such a change between the number of older athletes on World Cup Tour when I first started to now there's so many young up-and-comers. Yeah. Um, so it might not necessarily be uh, our bodies holding us back. It might be more that they're, the older skiers are getting pushed out because there's so much young talent, young talent um, coming, up. coming through. So, mm. yeah, it, it remains to be seen. Remains it's exciting. Seen. Yeah, they'll all move on to the A-bomb, right? Get ready for that for that <laughs> Masters event. That was pretty, <laughs> exactly. was pretty exciting yeah. when we were there, yeah. <laughs> so uh, for you, like kind of getting into sport and everything else, like what, um, and even outside of sport now that you're done, I mean, what what are some of those things that's kind of driven you throughout your career and that, that kind of continues to drive you? And, you know, you kind of touched on, it sounds like you, you, you got that little bit of excitement about kind of a new challenge and kind of going into it to a new area, but what, you know, just has, has driven you through your career, would you say? I think from, if we look back from a very young age, I'm one of those, uh, uh, what, what did you call it? I think younger sibling syndrome um, people. <laughs> yeah, so I, right. have, <laughs> I have an older brother, Hamish, mm-hmm. who's he's four years older than me and yep. he was a mogul chair as well. So we grew up, in a, a small country town in northeast Victoria in Australia, which is at the base of a mountain called Falls Creek. So mm-hmm. in the winter, we moved up to Falls Creek where mum and dad ran an accommodation business. So we were very, very lucky to grow up in that um, winter environment where we could go skiing after school. We rode to school on the on my dad's snowmobile and um, my brother and I'd ski after school until the lifts were closed and then keep skiing because it'd be go off in the trees and build a jump and basically I just wanted to do what Hambo was doing um yeah. I wanted to be like my older brother and he would coach me and I'd chase him and his mates around the mountain um and then my my family are also quite passionate skiers and passionate about freestyle skiing in particular mm-hmm. and um when the 2002 Olympic Games were on in Salt Lake City we were watching that on TV and that's where um those were the Olympic Games where Australia won their first gold medal at, at a winter game so Stephen Lisa Camplin, in, right? in the Lisa skating. Yep. yep and then Elisa Camplin in aerial skiing um so to me as a as an eight-year-old watching that I was just incredibly inspired I, I just thought she was amazing and I was like I want to be like her and um I remember telling like watching that and thinking to myself like how much you know it had so much of an impact on me and I thought mm. I, I want to be one day, I want to be the best in the world at something. And I didn't really know exactly what it was, what sport it was going to be at that time, but I knew I wanted to be um, in a position where I could influence other young women like Elisa had for me. So mm. very quickly started competing in Australia. We have um, this thing called the Interschools, which you probably saw when you were up there. Um, mm. It's absolute mayhem. I think it's the biggest organized sporting event in the Southern Hemisphere or something, which is crazy. Yeah, it's wild. Australia is known for summer sports, but <laughs> you got thousands of kids competing in all different skiing disciplines. Um, so I did that from the age of eight years old. Um, we, I did all the different skiing disciplines, but moguls, 
um, was the one that stood out to me. And I had my brother on the sidelines coaching me up and I just loved the variety of this in the sport, the mm-hmm. aspect of skiing, jumping and speed. And, um, but I think the thing I loved the most was competing. I loved that adrenaline and excitement. Um, so that sort of got me into the sport and I was always driven by that goal of, of wanting to um, make an impact and, and be like Elisa Camplin. Um, I remember reading her autobiography like nearly every night I'd be there in bed just reading it cover to cover. It was almost like my manual, my how-to manual. Um, and then, uh, you know, just dreamt of wanting to win an Olympic gold medal. I think I wanted it more than I wanted to breathe. Um, and then put myself in a position where I had the opportunity to do that uh, in 2018, where I went into that season as world champ and world number one. Mm-hmm. Um so I was very driven, I guess, from that age of eight years old to 2018 of like, that's, you know, where I want to be. And, and I focused on that my, almost my entire life um, mm-hmm. training. Um, and I was second into the super final. And then um, as I hit the top air 360 made a mistake um and just kind of blew blew the run um so it was like in the space of 30 seconds my dream it felt like just slipped through my fingertips um and I think I handled it pretty well in the moment but when I um was sort of behind closed doors I was an absolute mess I was heartbroken um I felt like you know I'd not done what I'd set myself out to do um mm-hmm. and I had to when I came back home to Australia I had to do a lot of soul searching and reevaluate um what I was doing moving forward and my my why my purpose um and I had to remind myself because I think a lot of people viewed that as like um I it was like a a loss like I didn't um do what they expected me to do Australian yeah. public um, mm-hmm. But I don't think any of those expectations were as big as the ones I had on myself. Um, so I had to really dig deep. And I I kind of realized that I thought back to why I started looking in the first place and what was driving me throughout um, those 10 plus years of training was that I wanted to make an impact and I wanted to show people the positive, I think the positive um, messages that sport has for us, not just as um athletes but as people sure so the last sort of four years going into Beijing that I kind of came back to that and um and tried to remember why I was mogul skiing every single day um and thinking about that rather than uh the outcome and the the gold medal Mm -hmm. um so yeah that was sort of how that that shift of what was driving me to be a mogul skier changed throughout my career or sort of I kind of did full circle and came back to what what was driving me in the first place mm-hmm. no i mean it's 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 always interesting like back at the base when you're that young little kid and i mean for me it was watching johnny mosley in 1998 in nagano it was like running around like the couch with like american flags and just totally freaking out and i was like all right this is what you know this is what i want to do and it's one of those things that um 
you know, that, that Olympic spirit and the Olympics, how much it brings you all together and how, how many lives it uh, continues to touch and influence and, um, yeah, absolutely. you know, how many people you've uh, clearly inspired in, in future generations. I mean, to be a four-time Olympian, uh, world champion, and I mean, um, there are always those highs and there are certainly always those lows, but, um, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes it's the lows that, that makes it, makes it all better. You know, you oh, learn so much absolutely. more from those damn mistakes than you do when you're on top. <laughs> you really do. You really do. You're forced, you're forced to, um, you're forced to, I, I think, learn these lessons, but I would say I actually have zero regrets of setting myself those goals, because I think if I hadn't have set myself those goals, I wouldn't have had, you know, I wouldn't have become world champion or gone to four Olympic games and had the incredible experiences that I had along the way, um, mm -hmm. developing myself as a skier and a person and meeting some really cool people from all around the world. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, becoming really close with my team, my teammates are basically like family to me. So it's sort of all of those things that I can now look back on and go like, I have no regret that I set myself those goals and, um, and then sort of realizing, I guess, after I retired that I didn't actually need that Olympic gold medal to have an impact and to, to live true to my values and, um, I guess, spread the positive messages that sport has. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I get, I've been approached by a lot of schools and, and parents and even young athletes that say, like, I do sport because of you or I took up mobile skiing because of, because of you. And to me, that's, that's like... Um, I've done my job. I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, super, super inspiring. And it's, it's, it's amazing. All the people that you don't think that are like paying attention or aware and, and to have that kind of happen and that response them come through and just, you know, like that's, yeah, that's awesome. It really, really is. So now, now touching on, you know, we touched on it a little bit, just like some of those failures, but what, like, what else would you say, you know, kind of perse perseverance and how much of a role has that, has that kind of played? Cause I know, you know, I think it was what the, it was the 2014, uh, 15 season kind of building up into that 16, 17, where you just like blew the field out of the water. It was uh, nine podiums, seven wins. I mean, you ran, it kind of ran away with, with the globe that year. And I mean, uh, obviously doing that put more expectations, right. Uh, and more pressure going into 2018 of Australia. Like, okay. I mean, clearly we're expecting you or whatever to get, to get the medal and just kind of go through kind of, kind of dealing with that, with that process. Cause that's not uh, yeah. easy to kind of go through and, you know, the, the expectations shift pretty quickly, like from one thing, yeah. you're oh. kind of in rhythm and you're in that, you're riding that wave. And it's like, oh, I'm just doing the same thing over and over again. This is easy. And then scores are coming <laughs> in. It's all, it's all kind of clicking. It was definitely, yeah, it was a fun season that year. <laughs> um, yeah. I, tw you're right. 24 to 15, I had a bit of a shocker. I, I remember coming over from that season like, what did I, what was that? What did I do wrong? Um, so it, there was a lot of, I guess, fire in the belly um, mm -hmm. in training that year. Um, but I actually, that was kind of when my back um, issues really started. And I, I you know, wanted to train a lot more, but I kind of had to, that was the first time in my career where I really had to be diligent on quality over quantity. I think mm -hmm. I was known for doing very high volume up until that point in time. And then being told by physios and the doctors, like, you know, you you can go to Zermatt and train on the glacier, but you can only do five runs a day. So it's like, 
boy, I better make every run count. Um, <laughs> and also had to rely a lot more, I guess, on um, my mental skills training than the actual physical training. Um, and then, yeah, so going into that 2016, 17 season, I remember being back in Australia about two weeks before I was meant to leave for Rooker. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember my back was not good. And I was even thinking like, I don't even know if I can get on that plane in two weeks time and a bit worried. Um, but I worked really hard on rehabbing and the, all the yoga stuff that we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, went over there to Rooker and, and just continued to be diligent with that quality over quantity. And then, um, found myself in Rooker, um, at the top of the podium. And I was like, all right, that was, um, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't so scary. And then I just tried to keep the momentum going from there all the way through to Spain at the end of the season. So um, I guess it wasn't, it wasn't super, super easy. Um, it was more about managing that, managing that volume and, um, and relying a lot, I guess, on the mental skills, which is something that I love. I've kind of always been, I consider myself a student of the sport. I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to, uh, reading books on sports psychology and um, mental skills training and things like that. So um, I, I definitely had to rely on that um, going into that season a lot. And what, so what's kind of your approach with, with some of those mental skills? I mean, especially if you, you read a, a bunch of those books, you know, there's all the different ways of, uh, you know, uh, you know, some people love to, and that's why I like to talk about people on this show. Like, you know, how do you organize your day? What helps you stay focused? Do you go through and you have all these different, books that have different ways and and it's it's always interesting and I'm always trying to figure out what's a better way to like make it click more maybe for me or maybe if it's like for one of the athletes I'm talking to what's gonna because I mean that's one of the things I love I mean I got my degree in psychology and that I mean that's I think it's especially when you're at the level that you were at and the uh, world cup at the highest level that there is I mean it is all mental at that point yeah. Oh, it's, I, I think um, Phil said this on the podcast with you too, like so mm-hmm. much of um, being a mogul skier is what's in between the ears. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think I'm, I would, I wouldn't consider myself a very naturally talented uh, athlete, especially when it comes to the acrobatic component of the sport. So I feel like I was, was almost like, okay, I got to play, I've got to play catch up somewhere else or overcompensate with, um, with, something else so um i i did a lot of i'm a really big fan of um visualization training or imagery i think Mm -hmm. there's so much power in um being able to visualize your goals but also um for skill acquisition and and Mm -hmm. learning skills a lot faster so uh, i've been visualizing mogul skiing for for over a decade um visualizing that perfect run of the movements that I need to do to be successful mm-hmm. and perform skills successfully. Um, I think there's something like I remember reading like if you like your 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 body doesn't know the difference or your your neuromuscular your nervous system yeah. doesn't mm-hmm. yeah it doesn't know the difference between real or imagined. So I mean you can kind of trick your body into learning things faster. There's that neural patterning by visualizing um mm. so that's something i tried, I jumped on that bandwagon uh, when i was probably about 17 and just um was able to apply that to my training and and have that as another tool um in in my back pocket uh, also you know a bit of 
stuff about neuro-linguistic programming of, I think there's a lot of power in, um, another thing Phil said, I think he's, we have some similarities here with, with this kind of stuff is um, optimism. I think there's so much out there at the moment in that mental skill space about like positive thinking, but I'm actually, I'd, I've kind of come to learn that I don't think positive thinking is all that helpful because there's an element where we do need to be realistic um, and sure. also accept certain situations where things are not going well and not the way we want them to be, um, accepting them rather than just, I guess, disregarding them and going, no, everything's fine. Um, But optimism, I think, is really powerful and it sort of comes back to that element of self-belief and believing Mm -hmm. that you can uh, achieve what you're you're setting yourself out to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, so that's sort of that element. part of neurolinguistic programming that um, I like to use. Also, I, when I did start practicing yoga a lot more, I started implementing the less physical aspects of yoga into my into my training, into my mental preparation. So a lot of mindfulness, um, meditation and breathing techniques. I felt like that really helped me stay grounded and present in the moment when I was performing, uh, especially during competition. So I guess you get to that point in the start gate um, up there before you compete where there isn't really much more you can do to prepare. You've kind of got what whatever you've done in training is, is over. You can't do anything more physically. Mm-hmm. Um, all you can do is be present in the moment and, and take the opportunity to, to show the judges what you can do. So um, I felt like the breathing techniques that I learned in yoga were really helpful in getting me present and, and in the moment. Um, and I think that's probably a big part of uh what that was something that I used a lot in that 2017 season um mm-hmm. to just not not think about the you know the yellow bib on me or the um the pressure or expectation it was just like I'm here right now um one run at a time and mm-hmm. uh yeah just being present I think there's a lot of power in that yeah and I think that that I mean that's really interesting that that you touch on that because I think it's so hard to find now with like social media and the phone and just like it's it's one of those things where like, oh, I just got to look at something real quick. I just got to look at, you know, and then next thing you know, like an hour's gone by and you've just been yep. like not paying attention. Like, where's the day going? Yeah, and when you're, like you're lying present in bed. And, and yeah, lying in bed or something like that. You know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's yeah. super important to just like, oh, what's going on right now, like around me in this moment. And I really do think that that kind of makes a difference and allows you to kind of recenter and, and really like focus in on the things that are important because like, there's so much going on up there and so much of it like really doesn't matter. Right. It's so much like white yep. noise and just stuff that you're like, Oh, oh and it's like, yeah, no, that's, that's not need to come back yeah. from outer space. Get I back think to like Earth a and- lot of, uh, yeah. So much of our, um, like stresses in life, are more, they're more about like perceived worries rather than tangible things it's like you worry so much about what has happened in the past or what Mm -hmm. may potentially happen in the future um, rather than just being here in the present so if you're worrying about something that might happen um next season or the next competition it's almost like and then you get there it's almost like you put yourself through the pain of that twice rather than Mm -hmm. just being like well i'm here this week i'm going to focus on this competition um and I'll, I'll let I'll let future Brit worry about that <laughs> when yeah. I get there. Future problems. Those are those yeah. are all future problems. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know what? A couple more. Just uh, you know, as you you you're making this transition, and you you have some of those tools. So 
how does that kind of help you not only in your studies, but as you kind of go in, like what, what, what are like your favorite takeaways that you still like continue to use with, with your new preparation, right? It's still, you still have to prepare. It's just for something a little bit different. So how would you say you, you use some of those tools in like yeah. the non-sport world, kind of more business, like, you know, as, as you turn that, that uh, page? Oh, I think those, those lessons that I, I was able to learn from, from mogul skiing can be can definitely be applied to the rest of my life and um i know this transition from athlete to post-athlete career is not going to be easy and that's something i think that was part of my thought process of making the decision to retire is realizing that it wasn't going to be any easier if i did it in a year time in a year's time or in four years time no. because i love mogul skiing <laughs> i love competing and I, that's never i don't think that's ever going to change mm-hmm. um so it's almost like, all right, I've just got to accept that. Uh, but I think understanding what my my key values are is really important because that, like, it, it kind of coming back to what drive was driving me as a mobile skier was wanting mm-hmm. to have a positive influence on others, especially young people. And I can still continue to do that mm-hmm. um, even if I'm not skiing. Um, and I feel like uh, journalism and communications is a fantastic platform for me to be able to continue um living out that why and that purpose and um applying my values to my everyday life post-athletic career so for me that kind of looks like well I hope to mentor some younger athletes and um both in an like official capacity but unofficially as well like I definitely encourage any young mogul skier to um, I hope they feel comfortable approaching me or reaching out to me for any advice or just to be a sounding board. Um, I love mobile skiing. It doesn't matter whether you're Aussie or, or not. Um, I'd love to see people just wanting to get better at mobile skiing and, and, and do cool stuff on a mobile course. So I hope to be approachable in that way. I, you know, I want to share the, the stories behind the athletes, particularly in women's sport in Australia, not just um, mobile skiing winter sports, but across the board. Um, and yeah, just, I guess, spread the, the cool stuff that sport has for all of us. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. I'm so, I mean, really being able to have the, those kind of key values, it seems like is going to be the, the main, the main thing to, to get you going into those next. And that's good to, to know. Cause it's so, it, you know, it always changes from like kind of person to person. And so that's, that's, a, yeah. And, really and it changes takeaway. within the person too. I sure, think, right. Like different yeah. phases in their lives. Right. So that's why it's important to like check back in and go like, are those values still as important to me now as they were four years ago and um, so on and so forth. Now um, kind of, Piggybacking off that, how would you go about uh, scheduling and kind of doing your your routine now that you don't kind of have, you know, uh, usually us coaches have everything kind of laid out pretty far in advance, <laughs> yeah. so you kind of know what's going on. Um, that, that's probably <laughs> been one of the, the biggest things I've noticed is not having that schedule um, yeah. and be, having a, like a lot more freedom to dictate my own schedule. Um, I... I I had a lot of advice when I first retired of not rushing straight into um, uh, my next job or career yeah. and that kind of thing. So I did take some, did take the opportunity to do a bit of travel. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really grateful that it wasn't uh, injury on my body that forced me out of the sport. It was on my own terms. So 
um, I was able to kind of take a little bit of time to travel and surf and, and do some, some things that I wasn't able to do while I was still competing. Um, and then it was sort of like, all right, reevaluate what my goals were and, and what that might look like. And, and now I'm just kind of plugging away at them and trying to piece a few things together in, in a way that aligns with my values. So in terms of scheduling, I think in the communications and media space, it's, it's definitely not a nine to five type of thing. It's a little bit all over the place. You can have very long days um, and intense periods of time and weeks yeah. and then you can have a couple of weeks so there's not much going on but uh kind of I guess I can draw on my experiences as an athlete of being like all right today we can't train because it's on wind hold so what else can we do and kind of looking at what is within my control as opposed to what um what isn't and um yeah so right now sort of in between a few different work things so I'm maximizing the time to study and, and get ahead as much as I can with that so that when I and back working again I can I can direct my attention into that as well um mm -hmm. also really trying to be like to be diligent with um staying healthy and fit it's I, I love exercise I love training and I'm still doing that a lot I've got a lot of friends that love to cycle and uh, do triathlons and that kind of thing so I kind of make a point of um continuing to train and have goals to work towards uh, in that physical sense, but also it's nice now that I'm retired, I can kind of treat it more like a um, recreational or social oh, thing. So yeah. catching up with friends for a, a bike ride or a run and then, um, yeah, doing it as a group rather than just being like, sorry, I can't come to that because I have this training set today or this um, thing. It's like, well, actually I, ca I can join in now, which is really fun. <laughs> yeah. It's a li little bit more relaxed when it comes to, comes to some of that stuff. So that, that, yeah, yeah, a bit of a, shift, nice. a shift in priorities <laughs> right yeah no which is a good thing I mean and if anything I mean you deserve it you know you think about all those years and all that sacrifice that that goes into it and it is so much sacrifice and and so much all all for the unknown you know I mean you kind of yep. can plan and prep and everything else but at the end of the day like it's all it's all for an unknown you never know how it's going to end out yeah. and but you know it does leave you with the fact that you at least will not have any regrets you know that's always one of yeah. those things that i well, that, that, never live with that's the <laughs> thing something. is like you are working towards an unknown goal so mm -hmm. there's because there's so much that's not it's not within your control as a model scare um and that's something that i worked on a lot with my coach kate Lamy over the last four years with looking at what was what what was within my control um mm -hmm. and that you know through COVID that couldn't have been more valuable to to be working on that so there was so much that wasn't within our control and it's like well if you you focus on if you focus on that you're going to be miserable and you're you're going to miss out on opportunities rather than looking to, at what you can control and even the things that you can influence so mm -hmm. I think like as a mogul scare you can't control the the outcome or the results um because you can't control what the other competitors do you can't mm -hmm. control what what the judges um how the judges interpret your run uh but you can influence it you can influence that outcome by mm. the things that you can control which is your effort at training um how you apply yourself um to every single training session recovery uh nutrition all, all of those kinds of right. things so it's kind of like every time your mind gets distracted to the uncontrollable controllable you redirect to what you can so Re can control right 
Now, one of those things that I'm not sure like a lot of people uh, are aware of or know, but I mean, especially during COVID, I mean, you guys had to spend because you had much stricter lockdown policies and, and everything else. So, I mean, you were essentially on the road for how, how long? I mean, you were gone for, for a while. You guys were just like, all right, we're packing our bags. We're, we're out of here. And what was kind of that, that, I mean, I know it's, you know, so crazy for everybody, but I mean, what was that experience? And I'm sure it, uh, you know, as you touched on earlier, you know, your teammates are like family, but I mean, you spend so much time (laughs) on the road with them and such a bond there, but just kind of what was that experience? uh, Yeah, we we all definitely, (laughs) we, in the Aussie team, we all definitely became a lot closer (laughs) than the last two years through COVID, especially for the many, many weeks we spent in Rooker. Mm-hmm. um but yeah home. we had a <laughs> yeah our second home um <laughs> i think i think we are now eligible for um uh permanent residency in finland or something so <laughs> but yeah so australia had very strict um rules around covid around quarantining and border controls so mm-hmm. not only were our borders closed to international travel we also had a lot of state border closures. So mm. um, I live in the state of Victoria, which is um, south, not the southernmost state, which is Tasmania, but that's, they're, they're almost <laughs> they're considered <laughs> a little bit external <laughs> to right. Australia. Right. Um, but next up is New South Wales, which is where Perisher um, and Jindabyne are. Um, mm. So this was before our water amp, new water amp facility was built. We would water amp in my home city in Melbourne. Um, so we took the opportunity to water ramp quite late in the, in the calendar year. So we were jumping in July, June, July, um, mm-hmm. out at Lilydale in Australia, which is freezing, like three degrees when we get out there in the morning. Um, but we, went, we weren't able to come over to Park City or to Whistler because of our um, restrictions on international travel. So we were jumping out there and with the with the plan of heading up to Perisher to compete uh, to train on snow in end of July, and then through August, um, we were jumping one day out at Lilydale, and I remember I did a jump and I was swimming in, and at the time Katie was on her phone uh, listening to one of the press conferences. So they're having press conferences with the um, Victorian Premier every morning to talk about the case numbers and the sure, new COVID yeah. rules, and um, she's. Do, looked at me as I was swimming and she's like uh Brit can you please swim a little faster and I was like why and like I got out of the water and she's like we have they're closing the borders tonight we have to go now <laughs> and so raced home <laughs> threw everything in my car um and then we drove up to cross the Victoria New South Wales border I think we mm-hmm. crossed at 11 30 at night and they were closing at midnight just so that we could train up in Perisher for the mm-hmm. season um and when we, when we did that, we didn't know how long the border was going to be closed for. So we didn't know when we'd be back home and see our families again. Um, and it ended up being four months. So we did the season at Perisher and then made our way up to Brisbane mm-hmm. in Queensland, which is when the water amp had just been opened, open, um, open, yeah. our new water amp. So we were able to train up there, which was awesome. But there are many more situations like that where we kind of had to do a border dash um, when we found out that the yeah, state borders were going to be closing. So we, we had a joke on the team that um, we ended up having to have a, a grab and go bag ready at all times. <laughs> grab and go. You never know when you had to kind of dash across and, and make it through. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's crazy, especially yeah. Uh, with, yeah, that's 
And then once you guys, you know, Ruka's the second home, are you going to, is that the one thing you're going to miss most about the travel is Ruka? Yeah, I actually, <laughs> I actually like Ruka. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's different, but I love, I love the training there. I think it's so good for training Ruka. Right. You've got, um, you're not driving anyway. There's no commute to, to and from training. So you can, you can do two sessions on snow. You can stay on the hill or finish as, you know, earlier as long as you want because you're not relying on uh, the rest of the team mm-hmm. to get in the car and head home. So it's kind of like you train your own time. You can stay out there as long as you like. And mm-hmm. um, I think because it's so cold, the course doesn't change all that much. It's fairly consistent, which is great for training. It's not like you're out there every day digging out the transitions and, True. Um, you know, under lights, great visibility. It's a challenging course as well, which is fantastic for training. Um, mm-hmm. And then it also the opportunity to train there before the World Cup is um, is really good too. I uh, also loved, we got into cross-country skiing when we were there for most of the season during um, during that COVID year. So I, I really enjoyed that as well. And I've, I've spent a lot of time in Rooka, so it does feel like a bit of a second home. And once <laughs> you can get used to the, the darkness and the cold, um, mm-hmm. I think it could be a pretty good pretty good place to be. So what are some of those other kind of kind of favorite stops or, or favorite courses uh, along the way or just places to travel? I mean, because I would say you more, you, your team or, you know, the Aussies more than any other. I mean, you guys really uh, pack up and, and go on the road and, and definitely log in the, the most airline miles, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, it was very nice um, when I was able to go over to that Young Olympic Ambassadors program to travel without a ski bag. That was so good. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so we've, I think 20, or maybe it was 2016, 17, I spent 200 and, I think it was like 228 days away from home. So yeah, a lot, a lot of travel, but I would say Deer Valley is absolutely my favorite stop on the World Cup tour. Um, it was my first ever World Cup back in 2010, just before Vancouver. And the place where I did my first World Champs, had my first podium, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it's just competing under lights with a massive crowd um, is a real, it's a really special feeling. And also it's such a fun crowd too. There's so many people there that love freestyle skiing and mm-hmm. they just, they get around it. It's like a big freestyle party and um, it's definitely the Super Bowl of, of mogul skiing. So um, Deer Valley is definitely my favorite stop on the World Cup tour. I also loved go- having the opportunity to go to Alpe d'Huez last year in okay. France. Mm-hmm. Um, that was absolutely stunning. I'll have a lot of FOMO when the team are there this year and absolutely beautiful place. Um, where else have I loved? Oh, competing in Japan. That was always yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I remember they just have up the side of the course in Tazawako. They bring all the, the local school kids up to watch the competition and they just like be screaming the whole time. They, they just love mobile skiing in Japan. So uh, always felt very welcome in that country. Mm-hmm. No, that's good. so. I mean, are you planning on doing any vacation skiing this year? Like, yeah, I'm actually just going to fly somewhere and go ski for like five or six days. Have you Have you thought about that? Or no, no. you spent enough time doing I, that and kind of. <laughs> I spent all my holiday time this year going going surfing, going to warm locations. So I don't think um, I think I need to earn some money first. Gotcha. Um, but I there is a chance I'll. Um, be at a few different stops on the tour this year um mm. in a more of a, a working capacity either mm. in um sort of like media in a media sense so hopefully i'll get to see see some people throughout the season um and watch mobile skiing 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So for, for some of those um, younger people out there, you know, one of the always things that uh, I like to have the guests just kind of speak to a little bit or talk about, or, you know, what kind of words of wisdom or, you know, I mean, we've touched on a lot uh, so far, but just kind of maybe when things aren't going well, when things are going well, I mean, what, what kind of uh, things would you, would you share with them to kind of help, help them through whatever their journey may be, whether it's skiing or it's completely something different in athletics or they're kind of going through school and uh, heading into different, mm. you know, opportunities in, in life. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's good. It's good. You brought up school just then. Cause I think that um, that's something that I, I needed to apply what, what we're talking about earlier of the things I can control and I can't. Um, um, I studied, like I was studying, I was still at high school when I got onto the world cup tour. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, but I was studying on the road. I remember studying for my final year 12 exams um, over in Zermatt and, you know, on those weather days that you have when you're waiting, I'd be like studying for my exams and then you'd get the call up, like the lift's open, let's go. Um, I did a lot of study on airplanes and um, airport lounges on trains, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably my, my best, the best advice I can give is honestly just looking at what you can control rather than what you can't um, and making that distinction of like, okay, maybe I can't control this, but I can influence it. Um, and I think that's, that can be applied to any area of your life. Um, mm. And it's something that I find myself coming back to time and time again. So that's probably my biggest piece of advice. And also to learn from everyone around you, whether it be from their successes or their failures. Um, I think that's something I really tried to apply throughout my career is learning from all the people around you, whether they be your competitors, your uh, teammates, coaches, family, athletes from other sports, other people that have been successful in other areas of their life, like business or um, the arts and things like that. It's I think there's something to be learned from everyone. Um, and yes, yeah, I guess always be curious. Always be curious. Yeah. I like that. So, um, one of the other things that I was just uh, curious or uh, you, you had touched on that Elisa Camplin uh, autobiography. So uh, what are, there are a couple other, you know, kind of books along the way that kind of have inspired you or you have those great takeaways that you kind of really, because yeah. um, I'm going to either to do an audio book version or something. I still have about 12, I'm still about backed up by about 12 books, I think. So you, yeah, yeah, I think so I've got, got a good stack. stack. Yeah, I've got, got a good stack. Like this next to my bed. <laughs> well, I have people on and I ask this question and then I'll be like, oh, okay, I'm going to order that book. And then it's yeah. like, I can't, I can't get, there's not enough. I got to, the audio books have kind of helped me stay, stay on pace a yeah, little bit. Yeah, it's a good way know. to do it. I think yeah. I need to jump on that bandwagon because at the moment I, whenever I pick up the book for like my own personal growth and development or enjoyment I feel a little bit guilty like I should actually be studying right now but um yeah so I have um my house my amazing housemate she's my best friend um and she's actually a trained mindfulness practitioner meditation teacher um mm. and she did a PhD in athlete well-being so we have this amazing big uh bookcase of of books on all those kinds of things so mental skills performance mindfulness mm um so plenty to choose from but there's definitely a few favorites that stand out to me that I recommend to people and one of them 
Um, you probably haven't heard of it because it's an Australian author, but it's called The Resilience Project. And okay. it's, a, it's a very easy read. It's something I know one of my friends has a 13-year-old daughter and she's recently asked her to read one of the ch- chapters in it. So very easy read, but it's also So you're saying I might and... be able to read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm saying is it's, any, it's, it's a book for anyone. So mm-hmm. it's basically this guy who was uh, a school teacher and he's written this book and it's just all a bunch of short stories from his life and people in his life about gratitude empathy and mindfulness um and i think there's something that those are things that everyone could probably do with a little bit more of in their life um and it's also just hilarious he has some really great stories in there um he's recently come out with a second book as well called let uh let go um but the resilience project i have it right here so i can show you the cover of it oh, um, i'm not being paid by the way i'm not being paid <laughs> <laughs> this, but, resilience um, okay perfect hugh van kollenberg is the author Um, another one, I think my favorite book is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. That's a classic. Yeah. Yeah. A bit more serious than Mm -hmm. the Resilience Project. Um, but also, yeah, a lot of good gold nuggets of info in that one. Um, and then I, in 2018, I did my yoga teacher training and one of the required texts for that was a book called Into the Magic Shop. And um, this is a, another one of my favorites. It's written by a guy named James Doty, and okay. he's a, a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. And it's his, he talks, it's kind of a biography, but it's also like a really nice story about his experience of um, learning the value of meditation and mindfulness and um, compassion and how that can be applied to his life as a, as a surgeon and um, I think it's a really I, I really like the book because it was it explains those concepts that are often stereotyped as being quite spiritual and a little hoomy-goomy kind of thing but sure. um, hearing it from someone who's a medical doctor was um, it was nice to hear it put in a different in a different light um, and yeah. just kind of I think gives credibility to those concepts um, a bit more credibility to those concepts um but yeah also a really nice story into the magic shop that one's called into the magic shop okay james Doty, is that what you said mm-hmm. yeah perfect awesome well yeah. thank you so much for uh coming on taking the time and, and getting a chat you know hopefully we'll get to do this again like in australia and i'll bring all the stuff down and we'll actually like do it you know in yep. there yeah when, uh, when you, when you like come that. over yeah when you right. come over to um compete in the Avon mobile challenge when i come yeah i think i'm i'm probably eligible now i think i'm probably yeah, yeah. If you, my well, g1s I mean, I mean i don't know it's gonna be tough on those things, those nah, things it's, fine. it's fine <laughs> i've got some skis for you if you need oh perfect but if you if you do it if you do it next year i'll do it as well oh wow okay i just want to have my <laughs> wife screaming at me at the top it's like you suck <laughs> it's terrible <laughs> <laughs> that's when it depends whether she's in coach mode or wife mode. Right. The There's those two different time. modes and you got to be able to know which one. Yeah. <laughs> it's time for her to get a little, little bit of payback. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Twist the knife in there. <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you uh, coming on and I really look forward to uh, seeing where your journey continues to, uh, to take you and where those uh, key values will, uh, will bring you in your life. So thank you thanks, so much. Bobby. For- and thanks for everything you're doing for mobile skiing. I think, um, this podcast is appreciated by everyone in the mobile team community. So um, love your work.
Uh, thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Bye, everybody. Yes. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. And if you're watching or listening on YouTube, please make sure you hit that bell button so you get notified every time a new episode drops. Thanks.